I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome everyone, and uh, new music for a new season, always good to stir things up, but before we go to the next episode, I just want to say thanks for taking the time to listen, share and comment on the podcast and provide the overwhelming sort of positive feedback that we get. Uh, when it started, we had no idea that anyone would listen, and approaching 50 episodes and nearly 250,000 downloads, it's still amazing that people tune in. So it'd be great if you, the listener, could help spread the word, and the best way to do that is to leave us a five-star rating on Spotify you can also comment these days on your on your favourite episode, or alternatively, a five-star review on Apple. Currently, we have 216 five-star reviews on Spotify and 158 reviews averaging 4.9 stars on Apple, so it would be great if you could help us boost those numbers. Finally, the podcast does cost a little bit of money to produce, so if you'd like to show your appreciation for the content, you can buy us a coffee via the link in the show notes or in the Linktree links and all our social media. So I hope you enjoy this one. Thanks again. Okay, thanks for downloading another episode of the podcast. I've got an old mate on today, Kim Reid, who's a former member of the Special OP Troop, who in the Cold War were tasked with conducting stay-behind operations against a Soviet group of forces. Uh, and on this episode, we're going to be discussing the International Long Range Reconnaissance Patrol School, and we'll refer to that going forward as Alert School because it's a bit of a mouthful. But a bit of an international call today. Kim's over in Germany, in Dortmund, where we were based. So, Kim, what's that like now without the army being there after 30 years? Uh, it's changed considerably. First of all, thanks for inviting me on the program. And uh, Dortmund has changed considerably since then. Well, the barracks were, they've completely been erased knocked down and been used as uh, either housing or uh, office buildings. The whole area around where our barracks used to be is now a uh, industrial park. Sadly, there's no street names celebrating that we were actually there, nothing like that at all. So it's been effectively erased from memory because what's interesting is when we were there, I think after 40 years post-war, I think the civilians in Dortmund pretty much had enough of us. So is there any sort of collective memory of the British Army being there? Not really, no. There's, there's a raise, I don't know if that's intentionally, I wouldn't say a raise intentionally, but I think it's just the dormers developed quite a lot. And I think they've just basically used the land that was there and just taken it over. The area that used to be the air defence camp, uh, Napier, was, was Napier? No, the other one. Yeah, I think it was Napier Barracks. Yeah, Napier yeah. Barracks, yeah. That has been taken over by uh, partly by the Dortmund football team. And it's been used as a training ground there. Basically, the army has been erased from the memory of Dortmund, you could say. Can you start by telling us, mate, why you joined the army? What made you enlist and why you chose the Royal Artillery? I wasn't particularly academically gifty, as you can say. 
when I was at school. And the only thing that really struck my interest, it was uh, history. And the only best thing about history was obviously the battles, the wars, the campaigns, anything in between. And uh, that's really what caught my interest. And so the military side of history was the big thing that I was into. I virtually spent all my pocket money as a kid on airfix kits or commando war story books and military books. And uh, I eventually liked the outdoors, so I joined the scouts. That was a bit tame for me, so then I eventually joined the army cadets, which is like scouts with guns. And I was lucky enough to have a very good officer in charge, because at that time, in the, that period in his like, 70s, so the long hair was very much in everywhere. And uh, I went to an army cadet unit, and the, the guy in charge of it was ex-Scots Guards, and he was having none of that, and it was very, <laughs> very... <laughs> rigid and disciplined um but very very good he was a very good instructor and he encouraged obviously everybody to go into the army and it was great listening to him and he got some some very interesting stuff and very early on i decided i wanted to go in the army and that was always viewed by people as a bit of a strange choice because i was not the typical image of uh, someone who would want to go into the army i was very skinny short-sighted very quiet and absolutely useless at sport and when i would go to the school careers officer he would say well, have you considered other things? I'm going, no, I'm going to go to the army. And he goes, really? But in the end, I decided on the army. So basically, when I left school at 16, I went to the army careers office. And my first choice was the Armour Corps. Both in tank training ground was not very far away from us. And I was really interested in joining the Armour Corps. And they turned around to me and said, well, there's no vacancies for the junior leader at Armour Corps. And so I was absolutely gutted. I didn't know some plan B. And then came a very good recruiter. And he said, have you considered the Royal Artillery? And do you know anything about the Royal Artillery? And I said, well, my father served in the Royal Artillery National Service, and my grandfather served in the Royal Artillery. He went, that's absolutely perfect. He said, you'll be a third-generation artilleryman if you went in the artillery. And they have hundreds of jobs. They've got self-propelled guns, which look like tanks, which are almost the same. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's the ultimate bluff, though. Yeah, exactly. And I was going, wow, that's not bad. We've got rockets. We've got artillery. We've got this, um, explosions everywhere. And I said, well, okay. And he said, you can get into the Junior Leaders Regiment. A few months after I was 16, I found myself on the way to Bramcut as a junior leader in the Royal Artillery. And most people turn around and say they absolutely enjoyed their time at uh, Junior Leaders and how fantastic it was. I didn't really like it that much, to be honest. <laughs> and I was quite glad when I managed to leave. But uh, in the end, I ended up at 3-2 um, Light Regiment in Balford, which was sort of playing, which wasn't too far away from where I live. Was that a swing fire? Um, at the time, it had 105 pack howitzer. Later, it changed it into guided weapons. They went on to blowpipe and swing fire. And originally, I was on blowpipe, anti-aircraft missile, and I got qualified in that. And later on, I changed to swing fire. And became Which is an anti-tank system based on, was that a Spartan chassis? The CVRT chassis. CVRT show because we, we, we're quite old, mate. The younger listeners here don't get a clue what we're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to look it up in the books then, anyway. Yeah. But the swing fire was a very good weapon. It was a very good anti-tank weapon, and I think it's uh, is I think it went out right to I can't remember the, all the details. I think it went to like four thousand meters. I think it was the longest range weapon at the time, anti-tank weapon, and uh, you could remote the sight from the rocket. And you could have the rocket behind a building and you could remote the side to the side of it and you could the missile would more or less pop up from behind the building and you could hit the, the target. It was a very... Wire guided as well. Wire guided as well. It couldn't be blocked yeah. or jammed and there was no signature to it. And it was interesting that we also did trials on this as towards the end with the, the firm that made Swing Fire and they were actually considering producing a drone missile. Whereby the drone... Oh, even back then... Yeah, even back then, yeah. And they uh, they were kind of shooting the drone out first so you could see what was coming towards you, and then that would be a, help you to engage targets easier. How long were you there before you applied for this special P trip, and what made you apply? I've been in about 10 years. I've done all I've done to Belize, Northern Ireland, various things, Canada, travelled around a bit. And eventually, the curse of peacetime soldiering, you start to get bored. And I started to look around for other things, and... Uh, I wanted a bit more action, a bit more movement. And then one day they came across this this sheet on the orders. They wanted people for special OPs. And obviously, as it's special, so what's, what's so special about it? And they said, we can't tell you. And straight away, the hook is in. 
Say, why mm-hmm. can't you tell me? Well, nobody knows anything about it. And uh, so basically I applied for that. The main meat of the matter we're going to be talking about today is the uh, International Long Range Reconnaissance Patrol School. And once you passed the selection course for the Stay Behind Special OP Troop, you had to go and attend two mandatory courses there. It also offered up a lot more courses that we'll, we'll discuss them in due course. Yeah. But I'm just going to introduce a little bit about the Alert School, give a bit of background for listeners. So the Alert School in Germany was a training institution in, based in Weingarten that specialised in teaching advanced reconnaissance and surveillance techniques to military personnel from various nations. The school provided comprehensive instruction in long-range recce operations, equipping participants with the skills required to operate effectively in challenging hostile environments, often behind enemy lines or well in front of your own troops. At the time, it offered a unique learning experience for soldiers, bearing in mind there wasn't that much on offer to Royal Artillery soldiers that was a bit different. Normally you had to go to places like Hereford, Fortinent, or elsewhere to gain some specialist skills. Uh, so often a chance to work with soldiers from different countries to exchange knowledge, share tactics, techniques and procedures and build relationships in some cases. So it included a wide range of subjects, mission planning, CQB, patrol medics course, survival and with resistance interrogation and small unit tactics. An emphasis was placed on developing the ability to operate autonomously and effectively in small teams in austere and remote environments for extended periods. It was staffed by experienced instructors, often with backgrounds in special forces. There was a good smattering of Hereford guys there. Uh, And they led the training and they brought real-world expertise and knowledge to create a challenging and realistic training environment. It's interesting getting down there, Kim, because I remember there's no such thing as hire cars back then. I think we went on the train a lot of the time as well. So you always got a good few beers in your system before you... Yeah, the train journey down was quite a momentous occasion. You had to, you had all your kit. You had British Army Bergens that we had, which weighed a tonne. And you had to just hold all with your own gear. And the train, you have to remember at the time, conscription was the main form of manpower for the, for the military forces in, in Europe. And at weekends, when we would travel down there, either on the Friday or the or come back on the Sunday, basically half of Germany seemed to be underway, especially a lot of Bundeswehr, German recruits, conscripts. And so these trains resemble something like out of the wartime where you had people in the carriages, you had people in the galleys outside, and there wasn't very much room to put these Bergens. I think it lasted a good like 10 hours or so, or 12 hours or something, the jetty down there. And each mile was marked by the, the beer tins or the bottles that increased <laughs> on the on the, t- the table in front of you. So what did you think of the school then when you you know uh, looking back on it? The school well the school is in Baden Württemberg and it's a very nice area of Germany. It's called Wealth and Concern. There was a the buildings were fairly modern, they were very efficient, very German, you could say. They were the exactly the same what the German recruits use or the German army used. And another thing was that the food was rather strange, a bit of a culture shock for when we went down there. And so the, it was an odd thing that the British used to get an extra supplement of pay for the, the food down there because it was regarded that the amount of calories that you had, that you got from the German diet down there was not sufficient for the work that you were doing. And a lot of that money didn't go on food. <laughs> well, yeah, it was up to you how you spent it and then what, how, what, what you decided, how you, you got your calories. So some got it in <laughs> Liquid form, and others got it paid for normal meals in the so called casino. The casino is the recreation area, it's nothing to do with Vegas or the battle. And it's basically a an area where there's a cafe, a little bit like what we used to call the Naffy then. So, if I remember rightly, there was a connection with the Rommel of Desert Fox fame in the area as well, Kim. Yeah, there's um, a plaque dedicated to him by his uh, regiment that he joined. He joined, he started his army career in Weingarten. He joined the 124th Infantry Regiment as a Feinrich, officer cadet, that is, in 1910. He was fully commissioned a year later and he served out in 1914. And there is a plaque dedicated to him from his regiment to him there in the town. It's a bit strange to find things like that because Rommel was a bit of a controversial figure in, in uh, Germany. And the, the Bundeswehr, they named a camp after him, a garrison after him. And that itself was a bit controversial at the time. There's people within the army that said it shouldn't be named after him. Other people said, why not? And so he is a very, he splits a lot of opinion in, in Germany. It's very unusual that someone that's associated with the Third Reich is seen in a sort of almost positive role there. That's quite interesting because in, Ger- in Britain, 
he's actually viewed in a more positive light. But I think a lot of that's down to his own myth-making, post-war myth-making, the fact that the war in the desert was not exactly a gentleman's war, but it was pretty much a war without an effect on population. So it's interesting to see that he has a controversial figure in uh, Germany. Yeah, he's basically, he's obviously anyone associated with Hitler, and uh, obviously you could say that he was doing a job. And he was famous actually before the Second World War. He was quite a bit of a household name before. He had quite a lot of successes in the First World War. He was very famous, and he wrote the famous book, Infantry Attacks. It's, uh, like I said, they have, a, they have a mixed opinion of him. So it's very rare to find anything dedicated to people that are associated with the Third Reich in Germany. Yeah, I was listening to a podcast about him recently, and uh, he won the Blue Max, and my French is appalling here. I think it's called the Paul Le Merite, which was their version of the Victoria Cross in the First World War. And uh, he basically did that by almost single-handedly getting, in, I think it was an Italian battalion, to surrender up in the mountains. And uh, he's from quite a lowly background, but... The fact that he had the Blue Max enabled him, it gave him that sort of kudos to advance himself. And he was a bit of a self-publicist. And a, if you look into it, he was actually a, a fan of Hitler at the start of the war. It was only as the war went on that he sort of started changing his, his mind. Well, at least he changed his mind. Some people never change their minds. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good point, mate. Yeah. So. Yeah. <laughs> And there was that bar down the town as well. What was the bar called? Can you remember? Uh, it's Swinging pro- Doors. Its proper name was Schindahallis. I, I never knew that. Schindahallis. Schindahallis is a bit of a like a Robin Hood guerrilla type uh, figure. So very up for the looks. Yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah, it's, it's um, but it was known as Swinging Doors because I don't think people could pronounce it when they were drunk, and uh, they just called it the Swinging Doors because it had a Western style doors as you went in. There you go, mate. You learn something every day. That's why I like doing these podcasts. Yeah. It wasn't all drinking and eating and travelling down the train. We had to do some work when we got there. So what courses did you attend in your time at the school, Kim? I did a total of eight courses there between 1984 and 1988. And uh, just as an explanation, there's some people who might have done these courses as well and say, well, I didn't do that in my course. The courses were constantly changing and developing and sometimes they changed the name slightly. So you, my experience on the courses might be different from some other people's. But basically, the courses were the recognition course with the recognition refresher, um, the battlefield survival, as it was known, the escape and evasion course, the medics course, alert medics course, CQB, and the patrol. And there was a thing called patrol leaders, which was actually a pilot course when I did it. I don't know if they continued with that. Yeah, they did. I think they later got named uh, the alert leaders course. Yeah. Just trying to give a breakdown of each of those courses, just to give people an overview of what they were like. The first one that we had to pass was, well, first of all, there when you got there, there was the administration. You got uh, a talk by the camp commandant. Then you had a fitness test, and the fitness test was based on the British Army basic fitness test. And uh, obviously, you had a very high standard of fitness on, on the course. And uh, the only course that didn't have a fitness test was the recognition course. But the rest of the time, you did the, re- uh, the fitness test first. Very competitive between the nations because no nation wanted to come over last even though you were well within the time it was always like oh he was last uh, the recognition course was you had definitely had to be fit in your mind for that one that was one of the most intense courses I think I've done in the army and we had a lot of training before we went with recognition and most people say well in that, at the time I remember doing when I was in a swing file we had a recognition test and I think they gave you like 30 or 20 tanks yeah, vehicles that you had to recognise and they were all every time you got a pitch you got this chains type picture or these airfix type box top picture of the tank or vehicle and you could recognize it from there and on the recognition course at the lerp school it was just like incredible there was pictures taken in murky garages on the back of flatbed trains heavily pixeled somewhere or uh, in fog in mist uh, covered in tarpaulins we're very used to seeing intelligence nowadays which is everything from drones yeah we'll just send a drone out and they'll take a picture of it and you have to remember in that time, there was no drones. So all these pictures were done by human in. Probably a lot of them done by the missions that were there in the, very, in the Warsaw Pact nations. But someone had to recognize this vehicle in the field, get close to it, take a picture of it, and possibly put their life at danger, probably taking pictures of this. So there was yeah, that, was the, uh, the, that was the guys in the Brixmas mission up in Berlin, yeah. wasn't it, a lot of that? I always remember uh, turning up there. And as you said, we all did the prep. And we thought we were pretty well prepared. And then you get these slides coming up that showing the two rear wheels of a, a tank and you've got behind a bush. And they end up coming out in the, entr- in the entrance test that you did and getting 
forty percent. <laughs> leaving there thinking, yeah, I've got a, I've got an uphill battle here. But you also you also did things. You didn't just do vehicle recognition. You did tactics, uniform recognition, map marking symbols, and all that just added to the challenge, didn't it? Yeah, it was, it was a very intense course. I mean, every, it was one of those courses we didn't finish at the end of the day. You spent at least one or two hours doing your homework, and there was obviously some people that had more of a talent for it than the others. Every evening you had a slideshow. You had slides in your room, and you were taking trying to remember all the various vehicles. I can't remember how many vehicles. I think I wrote in my article how many vehicles there was. In, yeah. But you covered everything, every Warsaw Pack vehicle. And that was from SS21 down to, I think there was like a suit trailer somewhere for some army. Everything was covered. There was antenna configurations. So basically you're looking at a configuration of antennas poking up through the woods and you should be able to tell from this configuration what type of communication system it was. And I remember they did things like um, they'd flash up a vehicle then you say, and 10 minutes later, this vehicle appears. And 10 minutes later, these two vehicles appear. Yeah. And from that, you had to work out the likely formation that was going to come in front of that. So it'd be like the vanguard recce element of a motor rifle division. A lot of thinking behind the pictures as well. Yeah, there was the so-called signature equipment, which is a certain four, a group of vehicles. It was a bit like learning sort of like a formula or something. You could see this evolving in front of your eye. And some people say, well, what's, what's the difference? By that, you could tell what, which level the attack was at. Because obviously they would do attacks which would be uh, diversionary attacks, and the main attack w- would be somewhere else. So if you could give the information about what type of equipment in there, that it gives the, the people at the higher command exactly what's going on on the battlefield and where the main force is, very important. And the added pressure on us was uh, the two mandatory courses we had to pass were this one, and uh, the survival with resistance interrogation. And if you didn't pass the recognition, your future in the organisation would have been in doubt. So there was added pressure there to to get on it. And likewise, you mentioned the competition. It wasn't just a, a matter of scraping a pass. You had to obtain a decent pass. Because- oh, yeah. It was a big, <laughs> big thing there that we, we obviously had to establish ourselves in this sort of world at the time. And one of the reasons we did it is we because of the recognition course, I think, because we were actually very good at it. Obviously, we practiced and practiced at the time, and that was one of our footholds in, into the into the sort of world there. So I mentioned the um, the survival with resistance interrogation. Can you just cover a little bit on that, mate? There's a thing called battlefield survival, and there's escape and evasion we did. And battlefield survival is basically for people that are cut off operating with a certain amount of equipment. It could be just the equipment you're standing up in, which is your, just your uniform, which would be what we call first-line equipment. It could be just what's left in your pockets. And we had a thing called second-line equipment, which was your fighting order, and third-line was your rucksack. And you could be left with any amount of equipment from third-line down to second-line and have to survive on the battlefield with that. And uh, you might ditch your rucksack while you might want to move faster because the whole idea was that as the Warsaw Pact advanced, there would be a very fast movement. You might be cut off and you might break out of a particular area to your own lines. On the other hand, you might also be trapped in a certain area and uh, you might have to then go into the woods or into a certain area and try to survive there. So you had both the idea of breaking out of being encircled or being trapped inside an area and trying to survive within within that particular area until friendly forces came. So the battlefield survival was heavily orientated on survival. The first week was many techniques of you can imagine the survival, survival navigation, survival plants. And I remember that we had a lecture from one of the Hereford guys, and he was there, he was going through all his equipment and uh, pointing out. Because some of the other LERP units that were there were very light. British Army always carries everything with them. And uh, main battle order, we had all our equipment on it. We had ammunition, we had food, we had water, we had MBC suits, etc. Everything was carried on your belt fighting order. And a lot of the other units you know, just have ammunition, maybe water, and they wouldn't have nothing else. Everything was carried in their rucksack. And uh, we were there at the lecture and being shown this belt kit. And he went through everything. And at the end of it, he said, any questions? And obviously, we all put our hands up. And we said, where's your NBC kit? And he said, ah. And for some other nations, it started a discussion with other nations. Other nations were saying, well, we will be so far forward, we won't need it, which I think is a very wishful thinking because it was obviously a big threat at the time. NBC is a bit of the ugly sister of all the military skills. Yeah, nobody wants to go teach it or learn it, but it's one of the- and it ruins and it ruins the look of your belt kit. Absolutely, well. yeah. It's, it look very stylish. It's very stylish silhouette until you put that thing on it. And uh, 
we started a discussion and he said, well, you're right, I'm think about this. And he went off, the, the, the guy from Hereford, the next day he came back and said, reference your question yesterday. He said, I've, he had came back with his respirator on his belt and all his NBC packed inside the respirator case, all brand new. So we could also change minds down there as well. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so NBC was just hated. And basically, whenever we deployed, even this stay behind rule, you were basically an NBC kit after 24 hours of the deployment and, and you stayed in the NBC kit pretty much till the end. Yeah, it was a big theme. And the British NBC kit was very good in comparison to a lot of other NBC kits. Americans was very thick, also very good, but very thick. And uh, we had a good balance. I think the Germans, all they got was like uh, rubber boots, gloves, and a poncho and a gas mask. Did good luck with that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think they were still living in 1914, I think. You had the battlefield survival, then you had escape and evasion. And that oh, was this where they did the resistance interrogation. Yeah, Gnar, that's it, exactly resistance to interrogation. Yeah. And uh, there you got the, the emphasis was more on what happens if you get captured. Because before it was to avoid capture, and now you've actually been captured. So just to interrupt, like, did you do this as two separate courses? Because yeah. when I did it, it was all done as the one course. Yeah, it was two separate courses. Because uh, right, okay. when we went down there, we went down there for six weeks, which was a fantastic time. And you're just doing courses after courses. And we did Battlefield, uh, we did seek, uh, Recognition course. It was like uh, going up the ladder. And you did Battlefield Survival. And then you did the Escape and Evasion course. And the Escape and Evasion course was being if you are captured, <laughs> what do you do? And obviously you have to try to get away as soon as possible. And this would involve you going through, preparing for eventually for the escape and evasion exercise at the end and resistance to interrogation. A lot of times, some people say that the LERP school one is is a, uh, an easy course. I wouldn't say it's easy, not by any chance. I think that mostly in England, where people did their escape and evasion courses, they were out in somewhere like Hereford or, or Dartmoor or in Scotland somewhere. It was pretty miserable. They spent most of the time lying in ditches. In Germany, they just let you loose. You were just out in the countryside and let loose in the local population. And you would have a series of RVs, meeting points. This would simulate a, an escape line, and this would channel you into a certain area, uh, make it more harder for you to be to hide from the hunter force who was in the, in, the lo- in the area trying to find you. And obviously the hunter force makes the difference because they are out to get you. That's what puts the, the say excitement, puts the... The pressure on you out there to avoid capture. Yeah, because if you did get captured during these courses, you'd end up with a little few hours undergoing stress positions and, and interrogations before you even went into the main interrogation. So yeah, you certainly well, didn't want to get caught. Although they would pick you up and then they would dump you off about 10 kilometres behind where you already were. So you have to do the whole distance all over again. We had on our course, we had uh, the... Uh, I think it was the Irish Guards. They were there for some time. We also had GSG-9, which was the German counter-terrorist police, doing what they do, which is catching people. They just they were really determined out to get every one of the, as many people as they could, and they didn't take any quarter. If people don't know what GSG-9 is, this is uh, they've been overshadowed a bit in the past. It means uh, it was a Schutz Group of Nine, and that's basically they are from the border police. And the Germany has a federal system, a bit like America. Each state has its own police. And then they have a, a police that covers the whole of Germany, a federal police. And these are from what they was named, known at the time as the Bundesgrenzschutz, which is like a paramilitary police. I was actually captured by one of them at one point. And uh, they wanted to turn hoses on us to make us talk. <laughs> <laughs> but luckily, it was stopped by their commander who came in with almost Hollywood timing. So well, why did, why did he stop it? Was he feeling sorry for you? No, not at all. They were they when they, when, they, when I was caught by them, we tried to escape them. They, they, they we were walking down the road at night, and they were there was this van to the side of the road, and every one of their vans started with BGS Bundesgrenzschutz, and I was with this other guy who was from the Paris, and we looked down. We said, "What's that van down there?" And we, we approached it carefully. I said, "Well, it's got BGS on the number plate." He said, "We're going to go back." Got so far, I never got too near. And the next moment, this van exploded. They just poured out with MP5s, torches on, screaming. I saw I have a war film. Stay bleiben, stay bleiben. And we just ran. And from one end of the road came armored Mercedes with blue lights on them. They were coming in behind. And we just ran and we split up. And unfortunately, my partner ran up a 45 degree bank, rolled down, he got caught by him. I ran off into a field and I thought, well, I'm outrunning these guys. These are the guys I'm fit. I felt quite elated, actually. I thought, I can get to be awake. <laughs> And then I found myself on the plowed field and I was getting slower and slower. And the next minute I got a 
MP5 rifle by the back of my neck. And I was down. They just uh, trussed me up like a chicken, dragged me down to the road. Well, they, they were not too happy because they had to run after me. And uh, they stopped us in the, dumped us in this town where they had their command post. Dumped us right in front of a, well, a basically a pub. Just weeks before, GSC-9 was the, this is the first of Germany's specialist units. They were a bit cagey about specialist units in Germany, and this was the first one. Was that historical? Yeah, <laughs> yeah a bit, yeah. So they, they were under a lot of scrutiny, and this was their sort of first unit that they were, they were quite proud of. And there'd been a big magazine article a few weeks before, lots of colour pictures. And so people who knew a lot about them, and we were dumped in front of this pub and just sat on the road in front of it, and there was blue lights everywhere. And uh, armoured vehicles, and they were there with balaclavas on, machine guns, the whole thing. And we're said, covered in mud, plastic cuffed. And obviously people coming out saying, what's going on here? And the Germans are using, the, the German police then were using the same equipment. Nothing to see here, move on. And uh, it was a bit hard to sell. We had a big crowd of people around us just staring at us, like you know, exhibitions at a zoo there. <laughs> <laughs> they they took us back to their HQ and made us strip off completely naked underneath a lamp and they were all around us and they kept questioning us saying, Well, like, Americana, Englander, Pilot, Green Beret. You can't ask that question, so which was a standard thing at the time. And then they were like nodding and rubbing their chins and the people they were whispering in the background, this is what they're doing. They were obviously planning something. At that point their commander came in and he basically said, What are you doing? He's not meant to be doing this. Yeah. <laughs> Did overstep the mark. Yeah, just a bit, yeah. And it was only later we found it from the DS. Was he transported? Their commander transported us back to the the DS, and we were bundled into a armored Mercedes. And uh, you can see the slots in the doors where the MP5s were kept and everything. And they had a communication system at the time, which was amazing. And these guys just shot off for the night with these cars, these armored cars. And they took us back to the DS and dumped us off there. He basically said, he said, well, the guys were going to turn hoses on. They were just curious as to what unit you were. They didn't want to know anything else. You, as soon as you said, I'm para or whatever, that was it. Okay, that's all. Oh, we've got a para. Mark that off. That sort of interrogation you're talking about there, probably handy just a quick overview of what they, once you got caught. So basically you did all these checkpoints and then at, at the final checkpoint, they would set up a capture scenario. Yeah, and then you're, exactly, yeah. You're carted off for, for a 24 hours resistance interrogation phase. Can you just cover briefly your experiences there? The last phase is, is that you basically channeled into an area whereby you all you gather together. And we had, uh, we had to cross Lake Constance, which is part of the Bodensee, which is a small lake. And the thing is, is when you're there, one part of that lake covers Switzerland. And so you go, when you see these films about people trying to make it back to Switzerland, the Great Escape and things like that, you have a little bit of an inkling when it must have been like to be someone trying to get back to your own lines, trying to get to Switzerland and moving in the local population. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And uh, the tension must have been incredible. And we got taken down there, and there were rubber boats where we had to paddle across this lake at night. The one part behind you, you've got the whole of this picture book shoreline at night of late, of the, I think, you, I can't remember the name of the town, but it was, as you would imagine it, at nighttime in lots of lights there, looking very like a tourist town. And on the other side of the bank, it's absolutely pitch black, and you're heading towards that pitch black away from the town. And you got nearer and nearer and nearer, and that's, you suddenly unload from the boat walk up to the RV area and suddenly all the lights come on. You say as you are, you have to play by the, the rules, so to speak, not run. And that's when the interrogation starts. Even though you know it's an exercise, you do get this thing called the shock of capture, where suddenly this bit is out of your control because you all know roughly what it's like. 
in interrogation, but you've got to face this ordeal yourself. I know the secrets of interrogation have sort of been revealed a bit to various TV programs. It's, it's a matter of entertainment that's bundled into an hour. But when you have to do 24 hours, it's not quite as easy as what I always have the impression it seems a bit easy on the TV programs, but it's not that easy at all. Yeah, I can't imagine they could replicate it um, exactly, the conditions uh, with the white noise and uh, the stress positions, uh, alternating between sitting with your hands on your head and leaning against the wall. And you're, you're right, I mean, it looks easy enough, but even just in a position like that for half an hour, it starts to get painful. Yeah, the, the, the interrogations are actually, when you get taken away from interrogation, you think, oh, thank God for that. I'm going to be taken away from interrogation. It's something that breaks up the time. And you could either get, they say, they say to you, oh, you should try to calculate uh, how long you've been there. But I just gave up in the end and sort of tried to go into Zen mode, just take it as it, it comes. Some people hallucinate. And uh, I had a, a guy next to me who was a helicopter pilot. And he was convinced that people were lining up, even with his blindfold up, people, he was convinced people were lining up for donuts and coffee. He said, well, I'm going to miss out here. And he actually took his blind, tried to take his blindfold off to join the queue. And obviously, one of the force rushed forward and said, what do you, you know, what are you doing? We'll put it out against the wall again. And he sort of came out of this phase. Yeah, because uh, what people might not know is that you can't hear anything, you can't see anything, because that's part of the sensory deprivation. But uh, they've got people in the room with you. And if you crumple a bit in your sitting position or you're... Oh not holding the position against the wall correctly, you're pretty soon corrected by a member of the yeah. I used to end up loathing those people with a passion. I'd have got them in the room for half an hour. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you get, you get some that do it rather, say, gently. There. I'd want to do that. But then you're thinking, are they doing this for a reason? Yeah, because you become yeah. paranoid. You think you're going to be... The other people are doing it roughly, and so you're obviously resisting. And um, you get at one point, you get uh, food and water. They basically just push a cup of water, plastic beaker of water underneath it, and you drink that, and they push off a moldy piece of bread, and you eat that, and so that's your real rest. And then obviously that lasts for 24 hours, and at the end of it, you're then taken into a room, and then there should be an umpire there. It's usually someone that you know from the course, yeah, one of the instructors from the course, because lots of people believe that if you go in there, someone says, I'm the umpire, the exercise is over, you can say what you want now. They say, no, you're not. They actually keep carrying on. Like, I'm not going to say anything. It's not yeah. The exercise is over, and again, no, it isn't. Yeah, some people really go into it, so you have to be told 100% positive. Do you realize that the exercise is over? And you go, Yeah, and you go, Great, and they, they give you a debrief there. And then, and that was another mandatory course for us. And going back to what you said at the start about uh, the courses in the UK and the course in Germany, I did both, for, unfortunately for me, because when you got promoted to sergeant in the, the unit. One of the promotion courses you had to do was the Army Combat Survival Instructor course at Hereford. Yeah. Uh, and then you still had to go through another 24 hours resistance interrogation. So I had the dubious pleasure of doing it twice. And I did the LERP school one in winter. Yeah. And I, let me tell you, as you know, a, a southern Germany winter is not, not pleasant if you're not They're with not the right gear. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's not kind. Oh, do mate as well. Um, we'll move on now to the, just a quick talk on the, the CQB course, give a breakdown on that. Yeah, the CQB. CQB is, was a highly desired course because it's one of the very few courses you didn't have to do any homework on, basically. Most of the other courses, you have some sort of work to do in the evening, doing orders. If you're on the patrols course, obviously recognition, you have to learn the vehicles. The CQB course is virtually a fun course, yeah, from the soldier's point of view. You go down... The- run, mainly, run mainly by Hereford guys as well, wasn't it, if I recall correctly? Virtually, yes, yeah, 100% by the Hereford guys. And... Uh, uh, you can go down there and obviously get the fitness test introduction to the weapons you use. And the weapons you use are the 9mm Browning, the German Uzi, and the uh, G3 rifle. And those are your three. So you get familiarization with those, and then you go on the range. And basically, the, the, yes, they start you off with a pistol, making sure that everyone can more or less shoot straight, because obviously the standards between countries at the time were obviously big difference. And uh, basic weapon handling. And then you progress from there, and you're doing you're shooting with the pistol first, then you go up to Uzi, and then you start with a rifle. And once you've learned that, then you start going on to, to contacts together, moving in, in teams. And the ranges were what most people see ranges these, these this grassy area with the targets at one end and the banks left and right. And what the Hereford guys would do, they would sell obstacles, they would put all drums on there, wood blocks and things like that and that would provide you cover to move around they were very imaginative very excellent instructors 
and you would start doing contact drills on the range. And you would go through the contact drills, you would do basic contact drills just from the front, and you start doing from the side. Uh, turning with a weapon, that was always a, a big thing, if you, especially if you were in a line with other nations, because you, you know what your standard most British army are, but you don't know what other nations are. Luckily, with their, I've never seen that, any accidents on the range, or I heard of any accident. They would be exercising us on the range, doing those various techniques. And then you do casualty uh, extraction drills. Uh, what happens if someone got injured? That was also an interesting. Different c countries have different concepts on that. We basically had the thing whereby we would just grab the casualty, drag him backwards into some form of cover, quickly check him and drag him further out. But other countries, they did the full Hollywood over-the-shoulder thing, running through uh, bullets. There's a Belgian guy, and he was absolutely massive. And uh, they would say, we do casualty evacuation drills. And they would always choose the lightest guy. And this Belgian guy threw this guy who were on his shoulder, ran back with him. And obviously, the elephant went up and said, okay, very good, but you just stood up with him in the middle of a firefight and you throw this guy on your back. And he went, I saved him, you saved me. <laughs> <laughs> on my course I did down there, they had a a wooded area and you're using the G3 rifle yeah. and it had blue ammunition. Don't you remember it? Yeah, uh, it was like. So you could use a reduced range template and, and they had some really realistic contacts in woods using this blue ammo because it really reduced the, the danger area of the, of the range. Yeah, you know, blue ammo, it was basically, it's, it's plastic ammo ammunition, yeah, and fires a plastic bullet. It's got a brass base, yeah. It's not, when I say plastic ammunition, it's not like airsoft or the other things. This stuff was deadly. If you got hit with it within 100, 150 meters, it could kill just as well as anything else. You could have some quite realistic scenarios, and obviously that really taught you we were weapon handling. At the time, that it was an amazing training aid. I can't understand why the nations didn't choose it. The only Germans seemed to use it. And I reckon maybe now the Germans would use it because they're very green, aren't they? Yeah, <laughs> All that yeah, plastic flying through the woods. Environmentally friendly. Yeah, exactly. Environmentally, not very environmentally friendly. And um, yeah, and we used to do all contact drills and bullets whiz past you, bits of bark. We've being taken off around your head, knees. Like I say, no one ever got hurt, so it's, it worked out okay. When you went in these courses with other nations, it was very easy. The British are quite arrogant, and it's very easy to sneer down your nose at other nations and think, you know, your army's the best. I remember you telling me a little story, a little dit, about your CQB course when the Hereford instructor asked if Emily had been in a contact. Yeah, we were... Do you remember that one? Yeah, we were all trained. We had, obviously, there's these... The, old-fashioned jokes about the Italians, yeah. And the Italians, we had on with us, were very, very good guys. We were there in a group, and he said, and obviously, you have to remember this is before we've been to Afghanistan and everything else. The Italians does the Cold War. So the opportunity for to be in a situation where you were in a firefight or anything like that was very limited. And he was there, and he was explaining about contact drills, and he said, is anyone here any experience with a firefight? Anyone at all? Anyone? Anyone? The guy put his hand at the back, this little Italian soldier, and he looked at him, and he went, what, you? <laughs> well, he said, yeah. He said, well, how often? He went four or five times. And we were like, eyes wide. And he said, well, what's that? And he said, well, fighting the mafia with the Carabinieri. And uh, he'd been in a, well, quite a few contacts, and he basically said what it was like and, and his experience of it. And it was quite surprising. So you should never look down your nose at people. You never know what they've got to experiences in, behind them. Now, I, I mean, I remember the towns of my CQB course, and you had to do a biathlon. So basically, I can't remember. It was like a, a run of a couple of Ks, uh, a range shoot, and then a, a run again of a couple of Ks. So we Brits did the typical British thing. We ran our asses off, bypassed the Italians. You had a strange running style where the weapons held across their shoulders with two hands. Yeah. And uh, we went there, breathed out our asses, missed a couple of targets had to do penalty laps and the italians were always really good shots and even their laconic running style and their accurate shooting meant that they beat most of the brits <laughs> yeah they, they're very they're very relaxed i used to enjoy hearing them when you're on the actual range and you, you've got these commands you've got contacts and you've got magazine and these have been screened down the range at the top of their lungs and when the italians used to do it it sounded like an opera going on <laughs> It was amazing. See, they, they were still in combat, but I used to enjoy watching them. They were very, very good guys there. Yeah. And one of the highlights of that uh, course was the visit to the Hickman Cock factory, which they, they stopped. But uh, did you do that visit as well? Oh, there, yeah, we did that. That was, a, it was an amazing day. They basically take you out, and uh, Hickman Cock is obviously the German manufacturer of weapons. 
and they have a very good aggressive policy of selling their weapons as well one of these things was obviously you had the left school you had the whole of nato there this was the opportunity to introduce their weapons to the troops there and you would be first taken off to a, a very good restaurant very good quality restaurant where you wine and dined and for normal soldiers to be corporately entertained so to speak at that this time in life was very unusual and uh, then they would take you off to their test range I expected to go to some sort of Willy Wonka type arms factory and uh, you traveled out into the country and you were traveling deeper and deeper in the country and you came onto this rate like a farmhouse, which is more like an Airbnb weekend retreat. And attached to the back of that was the range. Then you would go inside and they would have an indoor range and they had the, uh, the time we were there, the PSG-1, which was their, the first semi-automatic sniper rifles that was specifically made for sniping. Most of the time, most of the cyber rifles at the time were all bot action, and they went into this. It was quite a bit of a heavy beast, and it was used by the police mainly. And you had a competition there. You had three rounds where you shot a, a normal round target, and there was a 10 in the middle, and you had to get it in the hole of the zero, the 10. And whoever could get all these three rounds in that zero then won a small prize. It was just a small thing, which was won by a 473 guy, by the way. Well, was it you? No, it wasn't me, no. I always remember you being a good shot. Yeah, I'm, I'm okay, and uh, but it was won by someone else. So we, we the the kudos for winning that, and he got a, like a book, and he got a stein, and several other things. And then he went on to the the range. Now, if you like weapons, this, this was like you know, the ultimate day out. They would just show you all their all the heck, everything Hexacot make. They just had there, and their system was with this. They got a what they call a roll uh, rolling bolt system there, and all their weapons had the same system. So if you could learn how to strip one you could do the rest of them and uh, they had machine that the old light machine guns they had the pistols they had the mp5 in all its form which absolutely loved and you just spent the day shooting at them. someone load your magazines for you and they just shot <laughs> yeah so it was like being they clean the weapon at the end as well nah <laughs> <laughs> that'd be the ideal range day though yeah yeah no it was absolutely brilliant and they just shot away and so uh, you had a chance to shoot everything they even shot the side when we first got there. Just he shot. There was like a meadow, come lawn type affair in front of the front of the building. He went out there and he had the MP5 with the silence on it. He actually shot the MP5 on this lawn in front of the house. So we're not going to disturb the neighbours. Shot that on into the ground and there. fired a, a CS grenade off. It wasn't actually CS. It was a, it was a drill one. So, but he just fired that off in this in this, in this meadow. And then we went around the back to do do the actual shooting, and uh, you had to, then at the time was a was quite a big thing. The only sort of seen on sort of spy movies, and uh, was the MP5 in the in the case in the briefcase. We shot that, so you could feel like James Bond for about a second because it sort of <laughs> magazine to get, to go. We've covered a lot of ground there. I think what we'll, last course we'll cover off a bit of an overview on is the Lerp Medics course. So can you just tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, the Malerps Minutes course. A lot of people might ask you, so why is there a special course for long-range patrols? Everyone's taught first aid in the army. And normally, as a normal soldier, if once you're injured, the procedure is that you should be then taken back to either a first aid point where you're collected at this first aid point by your own regiment or by people from the medical corps. And then you'll be transferred back. Long-range patrol, you've got no options whatsoever. You're entirely relying on yourself. And uh, you have to remember that... Um, the war, if we had a war in Europe at this time, there would be no air, probably around like without air superiority. So once you're wounded, you have to, you're left alone to your own devices. And the long range medic would have to treat you with a very limited amount of drugs and equipment that he had. And he would, that would be for short term care and long term care. It's very unlikely you would be able to be extracted from this situation. And basically, he had to learn how to administer intravenous injections how to deal with various injuries, the whole range of injuries of the body, and uh, also how to use the limited amount of drugs you got, which were some of obviously very, very powerful drugs. There's also like survival medicine. You had to learn survival medicine, and you had to learn that all that in 10 days. So it was a very intensive course. I remember getting uh, practice on each other with putting in IVs with like a, I can't remember the size of a needle, number 12, which is like a, an oil pipe line. Yeah, you start, uh, yeah, you start with this very small one, which you think, oh, so I managed that. And then after a couple of days, they send, I'll put this in you. And you go, Jesus Christ. 
And looking at junkies as you're going down balls oh, uh, each night. It's terrible afterwards. Yeah, you have to you do the, you have to remember you do this every morning when you go in. It's like you know, it's like you would normally go for your morning run in a, in a unit. This stuff was like you, you unless you extracted a, a half liter of blood from each other every morning. You have to be so practiced at it, and you just went through the, all this training, and it was highly intense. We basically were, had uh, instructors from the Green Berets who were absolutely excellent. And uh, the American system, you can, whatever you say about the Americans, their their medical services are absolutely excellent for the military medical services. Especially back then when the British yeah. Army wouldn't even consider a tourniquet. Uh, yeah, exactly. I mean, they were sort of standard kit they were issuing. The average medic in the American Army was learned far more than what the British Army. We were taught, we were still being taught sort of the basic stuff that you learn at scouts, you know, how to bind people up, stop bleeding, stuff like that. And the American Green Berets were absolutely excellent. And they went through the whole thing with us. We had a Vietnam veteran when we were there. Yeah. And I think I went there in 88, I think it was, to do it, which was only you know, 15, 16 years after the Vietnam War. And one of the instructors had been in Vietnam. Oh. I look back on it now. What what a wasted opportunity. Because you're young. You just think, oh, I could have probably sat now with that guy for hours. But then you just say, oh, all right, you're in Vietnam. Okay, fine. <laughs> <laughs> Quite an amazing course, and you have to learn about what the relationship, what would happen if you know, if you have an injured casualty, if his blood pressure is going down, the pulse is going up, and that all these things meant differently. There's a lot of probably medics listening to this, and they would say, Well, this is all standard procedure. What I know, uh, see, it was very unusual to be taught that sort of stuff, and there was no sort of like computer aids or anything like that to learn all this. And when you had, so basically, they laid someone down, and is that was your casualty, it would give you a situation saying he's got this, he's got this, there was an obvious injury. You would have to do all your initial checks and uh, you would have to go through and what would happen you would have to relate to what you're doing in the body. So you say, I'm checking the head, I'm checking C7, I'm checking the back of his spine, going down, looking at his eyes, pulse, pupils, pallor, going down. And you'd have to constantly talk all the time. And they would then tell you, then say, you're finding a bruise or you're finding swelling under a particular point. What is that there? Under the ribs, you've got dark areas there. And you would have to, from what they gave you the information, you would have to then decide what that was. So there's no nowadays you've got computers which can simulate everything or dummies and stuff like that to give you a feedback. There you had nothing like that. It was all done between you and the instructor, and they would uh, put you under a lot of pressure. The Green Berets were really into that, banging things around, kicking chairs over. Come on, you've got to save him and stuff like that. And uh, I remember teaching things like uh, tension pneumothorax and tension hemothorax, which is basically air or blood and the uh, cavity between the ribs and the uh, lungs, if I remember rightly. And they, they teach you how to you know use a large board needle to take the air out or drain the blood out from that. So again, it was going into, for the time, as you point out, a lot of soldiers now probably get taught that routinely, but we certainly didn't, and it was an eye-opener for us back then. Yeah, it was very much an eye-opener. And the thing is, once you start, if you're interested in the subject at all, is you then get uh, even more interested in it. You tell us to buy your own books and things like that, and you try to get them as much knowledge as possible. And that was always the one of the dangers used to point out to you. So the little bit of knowledge can be dangerous because obviously you get, should I try this, should I try that? And you're not surgeons and you are very limited to what you can do with the, what you have. But it's, the, it's a big responsibility if you're a medic. You are, someone is injured, you're the last sort of line between him and death or a painful ending. And I, and I remember guys who did the little medics course and when they came back to the troop, we sometimes did hospital attachments. And a lot of times they said that they learned more and the training time at the alert school was more valuable than a hospital attachment. <laughs> you just didn't get any, get any sort of hands-on. You, know, you were brought in to watch operations and all the rest of it. But yeah. certainly the alert school course at, for that time was very, very advanced to what it you thought it, it, very anywhere intense, else. Very intense course. and uh, But despite the intensity of it, uh, we had two lectures by guest speakers there civilian surgeons but both were also German reservists and the first one we had was by a guy who was a big game hunter and uh, he basically gave us all the different things that he'd done he, what you could do with a, basically a Swiss army knife he was like Dr. MacGyver and he showed us various stuff various things he'd come across and stuff he dealt with and what you could do with things that were lying around and the second lecture we had which was actually amazing lecture was by a German reservist surgeon who, for an organization, had helped the Mujahideen in Afghanistan. 
And that was absolutely incredible. And uh, I remember at the time thinking of the type of people that you've got in Afghanistan. He was showing us guys, he was showing us an old guy who was scraping out explosives out of a shell to make a booby trap. The thing had detonate, partly detonated and his face was absolutely, one side of his face was almost taken away. Knowing that there was a doctor, so they had heard a doctor was somewhere. He trekked two weeks through the mountains to go to this doctor. By the time he got there, the face was covered, one side was covered in maggots, which he said uh-huh. saved him the infection. Worked, I think he was about 70 years old, this guy. So he walked two weeks through the mountains, lost his face missing. Doctor dealt with him. Guy simply said, oh, I'm ready to go. And he said, well, you're okay. Thanked him, and he walked two weeks back to his village. And we thought we could beat these people. Yeah. It, <laughs> when it was announced after 9-11, I can understand that they wanted to strike back and everything. Obviously, you get the jingoistic side saying, you know, we're going to be better than the Russians. We're going to go back and teach these people a lesson in Afghanistan. I was reminded of this lecture, and I think thinking, I don't think we really know what we're getting into here. There was a German doctor in my course, and one of the students asked him why he became a doctor. Yeah. And he said that when he was about 12 or something, that he was out playing with his mate. And it's just a true story. It's like initially we thought he's taking the mic. But they were climbing over a fence and he's uh, a wire fence and his friend got caught up in it by his crutch. Yeah. And tore his testicles off essentially and bled out in front of him. Oh god. At 12 years old and he said that fired up his interest in medicine. He wanted to be able to help people. And he's thinking Bit of a stunned silence when uh, you got that answer. Yeah, there's always moments like that when they they, they showed us pictures of you know what happened to people and uh, the SAS guy who used to take us used to be the chief instructor. Uh, he was often down at the lab school. He was uh, chief instructor for all things medical. He was absolutely amazing guy, and they would show us some tell us some incredible stories down there. So we'll we'll finish off now, mate. Before we go on desert island debt, so really a little bit of the where the lab school is now. So. In 97, it moved from Weingarten to Fullendorf, and in 2000, the UK withdrew from the agreement, the Memorandum of Understanding for the use of the school, so they no longer sent pupils there. Uh, And in 2001, it was renamed the International Specialist Training Centre, and it's now commanded by US Army SF Battalion Commander and also a US Army Command Sergeant Major. It's got a medical branch, and it runs a 24-week special ops combat medics course and a two-week skills sustainment course as a planning branch which has a two-week special operations planning course and a two-week military assistance course as a combat branch and it runs a two-weeks combat marksmanship course and a four-week urban combat course and finally it has a sniper branch and it runs a all two-week courses an urban course in germany an alpine course in austria a desert course in spain and a night shooting course in Germany. And uh, it's currently got nine members, the Dutch, the Belgians, Germans, the Americans, the Italians, the Greeks, Romanians, the Turks, and the Norwegians. So still active, still producing by the looks of it some very, very good training. Mate, it'd be great to have you on, and we're going to finish off with Desert Island Ditch, which, as regular listeners will know, is the guest choice of book, film, and luxury item. So, Kim, I know you're an avid reader. You should inherit a lot of your books. What's your book choice, first of all? Well, if I'm going to be in a survival situation, I want a book to inspire me. So the book I've chosen is Mawson's Will. That is a book about the Australian expedition to the Antarctic in 1911. It happened virtually simultaneous with Scott's expedition. And uh, there was a guy called Douglas Mawson who was disguised, described by his contemporaries as Australia's Nansen. He decided to have his own expedition to go and find the magnetic South Pole. And he basically went there with... Three guys, very small, tight-knit team, which we can sort of relate to. And as Scott's team expedition was basically based on naval, um, the, the rank system or the class system, his team was very informal. And he had with him a guy called Exvier Mertz, which was a, a Swiss officer, and someone with the fantastic name of Belgrave Edward Sutton Ninnis, who was surprisingly enough a guards officer. They went out on the way there, everything was okay, and then suddenly they lost one of their expedition. And it happened so suddenly that in the book, it really is a shock how it happens. You can relate to this if military-wise, because if something happens, you know, something that you like or one of your comrades is as he's taken out of the game, killed, it can be a shock. And then afterwards, the whole expedition went down the drain. 
and basically it was a battle for survival. And it's one of those books, that if you think you've had a bad day, read this. I've never heard of that expedition. I'll have to have a look at that. Well, it's described by its Edmund Hillary as one of the greatest stories of polar survival. So that's a good recommendation for someone who should know. Absolutely. Yeah. So what film have you picked? Uh, well, I see. A film I've chosen is one of the greatest films of all time, Akira Kurosawa's 1954 film, The Seven Samurai. Uh, which The Magnificent Seven was based on of my film knowledge. Yeah, but correct. he knows it from the, the Cowboy film. He said, yeah, well, I see, he said, I know the story. No, you should actually see the original film. Bit of a spoiler. It's three hours long, black and white and Japanese. <laughs> well, my sister, my sister-in-law is Japanese, so maybe I can get her to uh, interpret it for me. From the <laughs> it is probably one of the greatest films ever made. It's uh, an amazing story, and yeah, everyone knows the rough story about the the guys who are the professional soldiers who are chosen to defend the village against these warlords. The type of film that it is, is it goes really into the characters' character development. There's combat scenes and they're very gritty for the time. We obviously the westerns where they're very glamorous, but these ones are very gritty. The actual end battle is filmed in the pouring rain and mud. It's well worth watching. You should see it once in your life. It should be on your bucket list of films. Well, you've just put it on my main mate, so yeah. um, I will have a look at that when I've heard of it and I've read a lot about it, but I've never watched it. So. Yeah. Bear in mind what we just talked about. Is your survival choice a samurai sword? <laughs> you said luxury item. Now, luxury is even relative. And I thought, oh, what sort of luxury are we talking? Are we talking Palace of Versailles luxury? Or are we talking the left and sand in my underpants? I assume that I've got the, the basics of my survival, if I'm on an island. We never assume in the military. No. Game, no you know that? No. Well, but you said luxury item. So I think I'd go for the pom- one of these poncho hammock mosquito net combinations. Oh, yeah, good choice. Yeah, because it gives you shelter, stops you being bitten to death, and you're off the ground because there's no way of sleeping on the ground in the tropics at night. And there's an old jungle hand like yourself, mate. <laughs> Hard-won experience, no doubt. Put your torch down on the ground at night and see what's crawling around. There's no way I'm going to be down there. And what's falling on you from above. <laughs> okay, that's fantastic. My book choice this week, we just talked a lot about navigation there, so my book this week's Longitude. The true story of a lone genius who solved the greatest scientific problem of the time, of his time. And that was finding longitude at sea. So with no ability to measure longitude, sailors were navigating the dark, literally once they lost sight of the land. And this was brought on by a catastrophe in 1707 when four English warships sank off the Scilly coast with uh, 2,000 lives lost. So in 1714, British Parliament established a £20,000 reward for MD who could devise a reliable method of finding longitude. And uh, the stipulation was clear. The solution must be accurate within a half a degree during a voyage from England to the West Indies. And two broad categories of solutions emerged, the astronomical and the mechanical. Uh, the mechanical solution championed the notion that 15 degrees of longitude corresponded to one hour, but relied on strict timekeeping. And prior to the 18th century, shipboard clocks were notoriously unreliable. So up stepped John Harrison, a self-taught village carpenter and clockmaker who embarked on designing a chronometer fancy name for a watch, uh, in order to find longitude. And his meticulous craftsmanship and innovation culminated in a successful trial voyage to Lisbon. Yet he was a relentless perfectionist and he felt he could do better and spent another five years refining his creation. The Royal Society lauded Harrison's second clock, but he remained unsatisfied, dedicating two more decades to construct a third iteration. At the same time, astronomers made strides in cataloguing stars and navigational instruments advanced, leading the Board of Longitude to favour an astronomical solution. But in 1749, Harrison received a prestigious Cockney Gold Medal from the Royal Society for his clock's innovations, but he remained dissatisfied, constructing a pocket watch that would ultimately claim the coveted prize. And after numerous tests and a protracted struggle, he received half the reward in 1765, but had to fight for a final payment in 1773. Interestingly, Captain Cook, on his second voyage around the world, took a pocket watch designed by Harrison and used it to make accurate maps. So one of the biggest problems with Harrison's chronometer was the cost, at least £400 back in the day when a sextant and tables cost £20. But 15 years later, the price would drop to £80 and would keep going down. And by 1815, over 5,000 chronometers were in service. So the book is a tale of an eccentric genius, a man of humble origins, locked in a battle of wits with the scientific elite of 18th century England. It's highly recommended. So that's it for another episode. Thanks to Kim for coming on the podcast and to you, the listener, for your continued support and suggestions. Please keep them coming and our email and social media links are at the bottom of the show notes. 
You can find us on all the usual suspects, including Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. And if you download some iTunes and like the podcast, it'd be great if you could leave us a review there or anywhere you get your podcasts from. Thanks again to Nick Buell for his continued support and sponsorship to the series and offering technical support to his company ISAR. And we'll see you next time on The Unconventional Soldier. <laughs>